How's, how's everybody doing? Doing good? You probably, haven't, you probably haven't seen this in quite some time. This is called luggage. Uh, due to the coronavirus, most of us haven't been able to go on any kind of vacation. But never fear, I, I hope in a little bit you'll be able to dust these things off and go on a nice, long-awaited vacation. Yeah, it's uh, nice to have suitcases when you're on vacation because you could put clothes in these things just to remind you. You can put your swimsuit, you can put your toiletries in here as well. It's nice to have some luggage with you when you're on vacay. But it's not so great to carry it around with you everywhere you go. See, when I came in just a second ago, y'all looked at me like, what's he doing now? And it's another object lesson, of course. Friends, we carry around baggage when we're going to go on a vacation. And it's something that we look forward to. But my question to you today is this. How many of you carried around baggage in this room? Oh, it wasn't a suitcase, but it was mental baggage. It was emotional baggage. Things that were said to you, things that were done to you, and you can't seem to get past it anymore. And it just weighs you down every single moment of your life. Some of us carry around the baggage of regret. You live in what ifs, right? What if I would have done this? Or what if I would have done that? What if I hadn't done that deal? What if I hadn't got that second credit card? What if I hadn't gone out with that girl? What if I had gone out with that girl? I would be married to this girl rather than that girl, right? What if, what if, what if? And you look back on your life and you think, what could be and what should be? Still, others of us are dealing with the bag. Well, that scare you? The bag of neglect. This is the bag you carried in today. You weren't the favorite child, and you knew you weren't, because your parents, well, they let you know that you weren't. It was your brother. It was your sister. They were the ones that lit up the room. They were the ones that lit the eyes up of your mom and your dad, and for you, well, your best was never good enough, and they let you know it all the time. And even though maybe your mom and dad have already passed away, you're still living in the shadow, aren't you? You're still living with those words, knowing that you'll never be good enough, that you'll never make your mom and dad proud of you ever again. Still others of us, you walked in here today with the bag of verbal abuse. People have said all kinds of terrible things about you. They've been lied about. You've been gossiped about. People have called you dumb. People have called you stupid. People have said you'll never amount to anything. Sinful people saying sinful words, doing unbelievable damage to your heart and to your mind. And you carry these wounds with you everywhere you go. You replay those words in your mind again and again and again. Still others of us, you came in with the bag of guilt. This is what you carry around all the time. Guilt over what you've done in the past. The people that you've hurt. The heart that you've broken of God. The heart that you've broken yourself. And just when you think that maybe you could accept the grace of God. The forgiveness of God. That maybe you could even learn to forgive yourself over your past. All of a sudden it comes back to the forefront of your mind again. And you just can't seem to get past it. And so every once in a while, it just comes back to the forefront of your mind and makes you believe that you'll always be a less than kind of a person, just an ultimate disappointment. Still others of us, you carry around the bag of failure. 
And that kind of failed on the drop, didn't it? You tried some things, and they didn't work out. You messed up, and you blew it. You thought you were going to be a success, but you weren't successful at all. And the risks that you took, well, those didn't work out as well. And so you've decided that you're never going to risk anything again. And we say, you come to church, and the preacher gets up here and says, listen, you can really be used by God. You can make an impact. You can live a significant life. You think, no, 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 no. I've tried that before. didn't work out. That was the hard road. I think I can't do that. I'm tired of failing. I'm just going to go to the road of comfort. That's where I'm going to head. This is the bags that we carry every single day in one way or another. And it weighs you down. It makes you less than than what God wants you to be. So here's the question I have for you today. Is it possible to leave these things behind? Is it possible to finally live the life that you always wanted to live? Is it possible to finally say, I am not going to be defined by this garbage and this baggage any longer, but I'm going to be defined by who God says that I am and who Jesus claims that I am. I am going to be defined in the fact that I have the amazing grace of God who has forgiven every stupid thing that I've ever done, and I don't have to carry this garbage with me anymore. Well, that's what we're going to look at today. As we conclude our series, Greater Than, we're going to look at the the fact that God's grace is greater than our greatest sin. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture in Luke chapter 7. Maybe you've heard this story before. It's a phenomenal story about a woman who was sick and tired of being sick and tired. She's sick of the baggage. She's sick of the guilt. She's sick of the past. She's sick of all the stuff that she carries with her every day. And she's in hopes that maybe, just maybe, she can leave this stuff behind. Let's take a look at it. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36. The Bible says, now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. All right, let me set this passage of scripture up for you. You ready? Jesus' popularity is sky high. I mean, any town this guy enters into, people are flocking to see him, flocking to hear him. And wouldn't you? Who else do you know can heal the blind, the deaf, the mute, the lame? Who else do you know can cast out evil spirits? Who else do you know can raise the dead back to life again? And when Jesus spoke, he spoke about the kingdom of God. He spoke about a place that we never knew anything about before. He he spoke about a place that was amazing and wonderful and that everyone could be forgiven of their sin and be given a second chance at doing life together. I mean, people wanted this message. They wanted what Jesus had to offer. So he comes into this town, and there's this Pharisee. His name's Simon. And Simon decides he's going to invite Jesus to a dinner party. Now, dinner parties in the first century were a big, big deal. Much like Hollywood parties today where you got paparazzi taking pictures of all the dignitaries and the popular people and the famous people. That's the way it was in the first century too. They would have these dinner parties in courtyards where people could walk by and see what rich and powerful, influential people were there. If they had them inside a house, they would open all the doors, open up all the windows so people could walk by and they could look and they could see who was partaking. Well, Jesus is there. One of the dignitaries, one of the special guests of the night. And he's reclining at the table. 
Remember, they, they didn't eat at a table like we eat at tables today. He reclined at a table. Table was about four or five inches off of the ground. Do you remember this? And he would recline by putting his elbow down. And so his feet would be in somebody else's face. And somebody else's feet would be in his face. And dinner parties like this would last three or four hours. They'd sit there and have one course after another after another. So Jesus is there. He's reclining at the table. He's enjoying the meal. He's enjoying the company. When all of a sudden this woman breaks into the meal. Breaks in to the dinner party. Now it's interesting, but Luke's gospel tells us what kind of woman this was. He says she was a sinful woman. He doesn't tell us exactly what she's done. He just tells her what she's known for. This is the kind of gal who walks down the street and everybody stops and stares. This is the kind of gal who walks down the street and everybody points. Everybody begins to whisper. Luke's gospel doesn't tell us this, but we assume that she was a prostitute. Do you ever notice there's a lot of prostitutes in the Bible? Seems like every time you turn a page, you read a story about a woman in the Bible, she's a prostitute. Happens over and over and over. Why are there so many prostitutes in the Bible? Well, ladies, let me explain this to you. If you were born in the first century, you had no rights. Did you know that? You couldn't go to court. No one would listen to you. Your testimony was of value, zero value. You were nothing more than a piece of property. And if a man didn't want to marry you, if a man didn't want to take you home as his wife, well, you couldn't survive. So you'd have one of three options. You could beg for the rest of your life. You could starve and die. Doesn't sound like a very good option to me. Or lastly, you could become a prostitute. So a lot of the girls that were passed over by the guys ended up being prostitutes so they could survive. Now this sinful woman didn't want this to be her life. You know, I've never met a little girl who's ever said, I hope someday I grow up and become a prostitute. That's not what you hear. You hear, you know, I want to take on this major and I want to work in this field. I want to do this particular career. I'd like to get married. I would would like to have a family of my own. Let's just say it for what it is. This woman's life has not worked out the way that she hoped. And in fact, the nightmares for this poor girl have just become greater and greater and greater. And if we would just take the time to sit down with her and talk to her about her hurt, talk to her about her pain, talk to her about her disappointment, oh, friends, she would tell us the tale, wouldn't she? She would say, let me tell you about my nightmares. Let me tell you about the horrifying things that I've done, the horrifying things that I've been a part of. And then she would look you in the eye and she'd say, nobody loves me. Nobody would ever care about me. No one's ever cared enough about me to give me their last name. They've just used me. They've paid me. They've lusted for me. But no one's ever cared for me. No one's ever cared about my life and what I'm doing. I'm just a prostitute. God doesn't care about me either. Nobody does. This woman could tell you quite the tale if we sat down with her. Now, what she does on this evening when this dinner party is going on is absolutely irrational. And the only explanation I have for her doing this irrational thing is that she had an irrational love for Jesus. The question we got to ask ourselves is where did this irrational love for Jesus come from? Well, this isn't in the Bible. So this is your pastor kind of reading between the lines. But don't you think this woman had an encounter with Jesus before she came to this dinner party? Because it doesn't make any sense. If she's never met Jesus before, she's not going to break into the dinner party and do exactly what she's done this night. 
Now, I'm reading between the lines, so just stick with me for a second. But I'm guessing that somehow, someway, she had an encounter with Jesus. I'm guessing Jesus came to town. People were bustling about it. She kind of came out there. Maybe there was a large crowd, and Jesus began to teach. And he began to say things that were absolutely wonderful, things that were absolutely amazing about the kingdom of God, that it was available for anybody, that she could have a new lease on life. She could have a second chance with life. And I think she just listened to every word that Jesus had to say because it brought life to her. It brought hope to her. Or maybe, better yet, she had her own personal encounter with Jesus. She got to meet him. But when Jesus looked at her, He didn't look at her like other men had looked at her as an object to behold or an object to have. He looked at her with love. He looked at her in a way that she had never been looked at before. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus said, listen, this isn't God's plan for your life. See, I don't think that Jesus would ever pull somebody aside like this and slam them and condemn them. I think he would give them hope. I think he would paint a picture of what their future could be and what their future should be. I think Jesus probably pulled this girl aside and said, listen, this is not what God wants for you. And it's not too late for you. Wouldn't that be a wonderful phrase to hear? It's not too late for you. There's still an opportunity for you to turn this around. God wants to come into your life. God wants to rescue you. God wants to give you a dream that's no longer a nightmare, but something you actually look forward to doing. I can't prove it, but I think this woman had an encounter with Jesus before this dinner party because nothing else makes any sense to me as to why she did what she did. Because she runs in there and she interrupts the dinner party. Why? She's one of the ladies. She's out there walking amongst the outside the courtyard, seeing all the dignitaries and the popular people and the powerful people that were inside. And she sees Jesus being slighted. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, dinner parties like this, it was customary that when someone came to your door, the host would be at the door and they would greet you with a kiss. It was their way of shaking your hand. It was their way of hugging you. It was their way of saying, hey, I'm so glad that you're here. You're welcomed in my home. But she notices that Jesus doesn't receive a kiss. Jesus doesn't receive a greeting from Simon. Everybody else before Jesus and after Jesus receives a proper greeting. It's as if Simon's saying, oh, well, you showed up. Well, go on in. I'm not going to greet you properly. I'm not going to make you feel welcomed in my home. I'm not even sure I even want you here. But you could just come on in with everybody. Oh, how's it going? to somebody else she saw that and it ticked her off she saw something else when it was time for them to recline at the table and to eat it was customary for a servant to go around and wash everybody's feet in the first century streets were dirty they were made of dirt and mud and there was no sewage system no septic tanks people just threw all that stuff out into the street And so by the end of the day, with your open-toed sandals or walking in your bare feet, at the end of the day, you would want to wash your feet thoroughly because if you're going to recline at the table, your feet are going to be in somebody else's face. So the servant girl or servant boy goes around and begins to wash everyone's feet at the dinner party. But they've been given the instruction to skip Jesus. Jesus will be the only one eating this night with dirty feet. And she saw it. And it made her mad. 
She also saw that when Jesus came through the door, that they did not anoint his head with oil. Back in the first century, there was no such thing as deodorant. End of the day, you would smell pretty good. Not, not good, but you know what I mean. You smell pretty good. And they would put oil on a person's head, and that would be a perfume, and that would take the smell out of the room. Everybody else got oil placed on their head except for Jesus. It was as if Simon was saying, I really don't want you here, and since you are here, I'm going to make sure you stink as bad as you possibly can, and you are truly the annoyance at this dinner party. She sees Jesus be slighted not once, not twice, but three times, and in the words of Popeye, she's had all she can stands. She can't stands no more. And she runs into that courtyard and into that party. Now, whatever conversation was happening up until this point in time, let me tell you something, friends. It stopped immediately. And everybody's eyes turned towards her. And when they saw her, she got the same looks that she had gotten so many times before. Looks of judgment and condemnation. Looks from these dignitaries like who in the world do you think you are and why in the world do you think you should be in this room and you need to leave this place right now you disgusting sinner she sees their looks and she's felt that pain before she's lived her whole life consumed with what everybody else thinks of her but she's done with that She's going to be certain that Jesus is treated properly. So she falls down on her knees and she begins to weep. The Greek word here in the Bible is a word that means she is uncontrollably crying. She is crying so hard that she's wheezing. You ever had to cry so hard that you can't catch your breath? That's what she's doing. Tears just pouring down off of her cheeks, down off her chin, onto the feet of Jesus. And then she realizes, oh my goodness, what in the world am I doing? What have I done? And then she does something that no self-respecting Jewish woman would ever do in the first century. She lets down her hair. A woman only let down her hair in the first century when she was getting ready to go to bed at night. To do that out in public was a very scandalous thing, but she, again, doesn't care what anybody else says or anybody else thinks. She's going to clean Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair. So she lets down her hair, and she begins to wipe away the tears with her hair. And then she takes a small alabaster jar made of, with perfume inside, and she opens it up, and she begins to pour the contents of the alabaster jar all over the feet of Jesus. Now, you probably don't understand what's significant about this, but the alabaster jar of perfume, this was her livelihood. When a man would come to her and uh, they would determine how much she would get paid for her services, she would go into a bedroom, she would take the perfume, she would put little drops of perfume on the bed to give it a sweet aroma. But she comes to Jesus on this evening and she opens up her alabaster jar and she pours out all of the contents. Here's what it means. 
I don't want to live this way anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I want no part of my old way of doing life. She poured it all out. Now, as we sit here today and as we're at home, we got to ask ourselves a question. Is there anything in our life that we need to pour out on the feet of Jesus? Any sin in our life, anything that we've got ourselves currently involved in that is not honoring of him? Because I think some of us need to go home, or as soon as you're done watching this service, I think you need to go over to your liquor cabinet, and I think you need to empty it out. You say, Todd, I'm not a drunk. I don't get drunk. I, I just have a drink from time to time. Well, let me ask you a question. If you have to have the drink, if you can't go a day without a drink, if you need a drink to calm you down, to de-stress you, let me ask you something. Are you more filled with the Holy Spirit of God or are you more filled with alcohol? What's really controlling your life? If you need some kind of alcoholic substance or some kind of drug to control your mood, you're not being controlled by the Spirit of God, it's time for you to pour it out. Some of us need to go home or as soon as this service is over, you need to shut down some subscriptions that you've got. Some things that you've allowed into your life, some websites that you've allowed into your life that haven't been beneficial to you, that have only brought about pain and guilt. And every time you go back to that stuff, whether it's softcore porn or hardcore porn, it brings about the guilt once again. You need to pour it out at the feet of Jesus and say, I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. My goodness, some of us are involved in relationships that just simply aren't honoring of God. And most of us in this room, you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been in a relationship like this at some point in time in your life. You need to get rid of it. You need to have a hard conversation and say, we're not doing that stuff anymore. And if you continue to do that stuff, you need to get rid of it. You need to say, I'm not living this way anymore. I'm not going to live one way over here and one way over there because a double-minded life ain't no life at all. Some of us need to just pour out our past. Say, I'm not going to live it anymore. I'm not going to carry guilt. I'm not going to carry verbal abuse. I'm not going to carry this baggage with me anymore. I'm going to leave it at the feet of Jesus. This alabaster jar had another bit of significance to it. It was her life savings. What is she doing? She's pouring out her life savings. She's saying, Jesus, you're all that I need and you're all that I want. I'm trusting in you to take care of me from this point forward. I'm trusting in you to do only what you can do in my life. Now, Simon the Pharisee is disgusted by this woman, isn't he? If you read on in the story, he's at the other end of the table. He looks down at this woman who has is, who is knelt down, who's crying over Jesus' feet, pulled down her hair, pouring out this alabaster jar, and he knows who she is. He knows what she does for a living. And he doesn't have compassion for the situation. He doesn't look down at the other end of the table and go, oh, this is amazing. This is an absolute miracle. Of all the people that you never thought would want to get their life right with God, this is the person. I mean, hallelujah, miracle from God. You would think that would be Simon's reaction. But it's not. He hates her. He despises her. He's disgusted by her. And he thinks, who in the world does this woman think she is coming in here ruining my dinner party and sitting at the feet of Jesus? And I can't believe that Jesus is even letting this woman touch him. There was a belief in the first century that if a sinful person touched someone who claimed to be holy, that the sinful person's sins were actually transferred over to the holy person. And so Simon reasons to himself, hey, if this guy really was a holy guy, if Jesus really is the son of God, he would know what a despicable sinner is touching him right now, and he would realize that he's become unclean. 
That's what the Bible says. Luke 7, 39, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. If Jesus was really a prophet, he would know what a filthy person is touching him right now. But Jesus doesn't seem to care, does he? He, he knew with the belief that a sinful person touching someone who claimed to be holy meant that they became unclean as well. That didn't face Jesus for a second. Isn't that what he's done for all of us? On the cross at 12 noon, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of your sin, my sin, was placed upon Jesus. He took our sin, our shame, our guilt upon himself so that we could leave the baggage behind. Max Lucado wrote this. He said, Can you imagine bearing the collective shame of all humanity? One wave of shame after another was dumped on Jesus. Though he never cheated, he was convicted as a cheat. Though he never stole, he was regarded as a thief. Though he never lied, he was considered a liar. Though he never lusted, he bore the shame of the adulterer. Jesus knows what this woman's done. He knows all about her sins. He's going to die on the cross so she can be forgiven of those sins. And he's going to rise again from the dead. He looks down at the other end of the table where Simon is. And he says, uh, Simon, let me, let me tell you a story. And Simon says, well, by all means, what story do you have for me? Jesus said, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Jesus said, well, you have judged correctly. And, and then Jesus said, do you see this woman? Do you see her? This is, this is somebody's daughter. This could be somebody's mom. This is a person who's made in the image of God. Simon, every single person you've ever locked eyes with matters to God, and therefore they should matter to you as well. But you're so quick to condemn. You're so quick to judge. You're so quick to act like you're better than everybody else, aren't you? And so Jesus... He continues, he said, I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you didn't put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who's been forgiven little loves little. Now, now what, is, what does Jesus mean when he says this to Simon? He who has been forgiven little loves little. Is Jesus saying, listen, Simon, I get it. I, I get why you don't love me. I, I, I get it. You're, you're a pretty good guy, man. I mean, you haven't sinned that bad. I mean, it comes right down to it. Compared to this woman, you're not near the sinner that she is. So I get why you don't love me that much because you don't think you need to be forgiven for that much. Because honestly, you really are a pretty good guy, aren't you? For all of you who think you're going to someday stand before a holy God and give an account for your life and your goodness is somehow going to earn you access into heaven, you are making the same mistake as Simon the Pharisee. 
He was so confident in his own righteousness, wasn't he? He was so confident in his own goodness. He was so arrogant that he would look at another human being and judge them and condemn them and want nothing to do with them. And he doesn't see the sin in that. Is she just saying, hey, Simon, hey, the reason, the reason you don't love me is because you don't need to be forgiven that much. You're a really good guy. Is that what Jesus is saying to him? Absolutely not. He's saying, listen, everybody knows this woman's sin. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. She knows it. She can tell you quite the story. She just wants to be made right with God. She just wants to be clean. So she's coming humbly here, friend. She's surrendering everything she is. And she will be forgiven. She'll be forgiven for all of it. And look at the overflow of love she has because she knew there was no way she could ever pay her sin debt on her own. She loves me much because she knows she's been forgiven much. But you, Simon, you're just as bad as she is. You've got just as much sin in your life and you don't even see it. Oh, Simon, the pride, the arrogance, the hypocrisy... You're so blind to it. You don't think you need forgiveness. You don't think you need a Savior because you're going to save yourself. If that's where you're at today, friends, you've got to ask yourself, which person are you in the story? Are you the woman or are you Simon? Do you understand what you've been forgiven of? Do you understand what a miserable wretch we are? And that we need Jesus to come and die for us and rise again. That there's no way we can pay our sin debt on our own. My favorite passage of scripture in all of the Bible is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1 starting with verse 15. Paul, the greatest missionary to ever walk the face of the earth. Paul, the one that God used to write almost half of the New Testament pens this verse of scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Paul, greatest missionary who walked the face of the earth. Paul, the one that God used to write almost half the New Testament, penned the words, I am the worst of all sinners. How much did Paul love Jesus? He who knows that he's been forgiven much, loves God much. But he who thinks he's not that bad, that his sin isn't as bad as somebody else's, will never have a close relationship with Jesus. So i got to ask you a couple of questions. How long has it been since you've been blown away by the forgiveness of God? Or do you just kind of skate through your days and think, you know, I'm in pretty good shape. I mean, when's the last time you really confessed your sin? And I mean saying something more than, oh, and by the way, God, forgive me for all my sin. 
When's the last time you wept over your sin? When's the last time you confessed your sin? When is the last time that you believed that you were a great sinner in need of a great Savior? Because if it's been a while, I bet you anything, you've become kind of like a Pharisee. And you start looking down on other people, and you start condemning other people, and you start being judgmental to other people because you've forgotten what a great sinner you are and what a great Savior you have. Why is it that the most beloved song of all time is Amazing Grace? Because it strikes right to the core, doesn't it? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Oh, I was blind, but now I see. So which one are you? Simon the Pharisee or the woman? You know your desperate need, and you come to him laying it down. You can carry this baggage for the rest of your life if you want to. The baggage of what everybody else has said and what everybody else has thought. And you can beat yourself up with negative, negative thoughts and negative words. And you can make yourself convince yourself that you're never going to amount to anything, that you're never going to be used by God. You can live your life that way. A lot of people do. Or you can say, you know what? That's who I was. But that's not who I am anymore. And I don't want this. I just want Jesus. That's all I want. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, may we understand what great sinners we are and what a great Savior you are. And may we stop glossing over our sin as if it's not that big of a deal or as if our situation with you is somehow better than somebody else's. God, forgive us for every judgmental thought and every judgmental glance for every time we made someone believe that they were less than. Lord, we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. And for those of us who understand it, for those of us who grasp it, it changes everything. Because now we walk in grace. We walk in your mercy. We walk in your forgiveness. And as a result, we want to extend it on to others because you've been so good to us, so gracious to us. How in the world could we ever treat someone with disdain and dislike? So God, fill us with a new awareness of what we've been forgiven for. Show us, reveal to us the areas of our life that are out of sync with you so that we might confess it as sin and go a different direction. God, help us to leave the baggage behind that's been weighing us down for far too long. Please help us. We believe that you are greater than our greatest sin. Give us that perspective. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.